Damon Linker is the senior correspondent uh, for a magazine that's called The Week. Some of you know it. It's a, it, it shows itself as a kind of magazine that is free of political biases, and he wrote this very profoundly reflective article. Now, you need to understand that um, Mr. Linker, he's not a Christian by any means, and uh, in his article he writes that he himself rejects traditional and biblical views of sex and marriage, but he also argues that there is a lot of merit in them. And so what he wrote is, Western civilization has upheld these old sexual standards for the greater part of 2,000 years, and we broke from it in the blink of an eye. And the gains were pretty clear to us here in the West that it's fun and it feels good. But he says, I also admit that there's a price that we've witnessed the rapid-fire mainstreaming of homosexuality, transforming the institution of marriage to accommodate it. And thanks to the internet, pornography has never been so freely available or easily accessible. There are websites that facilitate extramarital affairs, smartphone apps for no-strings-attached hookups, and in our society today, he says, a push to normalize polyamorous open relationships and marriages, to remove the stigma from adultery, and even affirm the goodness of infidelity. And so when questions about how this impacts our children and our society come up, he writes, I have no idea how to answer them. I know they're important, and I respect those who are troubled by them, and maybe you and I should too. I read another study uh, from ChristianMingle.com. Some of you are familiar with various dating websites and apps, and ChristianMingle.com actually did a study of people aged 18 through 59, and uh, they found that there was a dramatic shift even amongst Christians in the same direction as our, as our society. In fact, a startling 63% of Christian singles responded that they would be more than happy to have sex before marriage. And so Pastor Ken Luck, who is analyzing the study, calls this a sexual atheism, that there's a belief in many Christians in a wise and sovereign and loving God who created them, who created sex, who created all things, and that simultaneously he should not, he cannot, and he will not inform our sexual thinking or our sexual living. And so today we want to get from Jesus maybe his perspective from the Word of God. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're in this series called Clear. Uh, for those of you who don't own a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible at home, take that one home with you. That's what they're there for. And uh, it'll also be up on the big screen. But this series about clear is learning in a confusing and conflicted world to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter to the church that instead of being blinded by the values of our world to see clearly through your identity in Christ, that as you are loved and forgiven and transformed through the cross, that he guides us and grows us in both holiness and unity together, that we might be distinct from the world. And then he goes on throughout this letter to show how this practically applies to issues like we've covered division in the church, sin issues, conflict, and now he's going to talk about sex. 
So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, quote-unquote, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, another quote, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So I don't know if you've ever heard something that sounds Christian, but that's actually not biblical, like when people say things like, well, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, that's not actually biblically or theologically accurate. And what's happening here in verse 12 is Paul is quoting this popular saying amongst Corinthian people that all things are lawful for me. And there's some grain of truth in that because it's coming from a good place that because I am forgiven, because of my assurance of salvation in Christ, I'm free to do whatever I want. But it's based on a grave theological error that since salvation is spiritual, that the physical doesn't matter. And therefore, I can satisfy all the cravings and desires of my body with no repercussions because it doesn't matter. And Paul says, okay, that's true that Jesus' blood does in fact cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. But there are two important problems with your premise here. And in quoting that quote, first of all, he says that not everything that's permissible is profitable. In other words, it's not helpful or good for you. There's a lot of things you're allowed to do. You could punch yourself in the face. You could set your car on fire. You could lick the toilet bowl. But I wouldn't recommend it. There's not much upside to doing that. And so the question that he's asking here is, there's a lot of things that, yes, you're permitted to do, because you're free and forgiven and, and saved, but is it actually beneficial? What is the cost if you do that thing? So I want you to think about when we work outside of the boundaries that God has set for us for the healthiness biblically of sexuality, what are the emotional costs? What is the cost physically, financially? What's the devastation that it causes relationally to your integrity? and spiritually for any kind of sexual activity outside of the boundaries and the goodness of God. Second, he says when people say that everything is lawful for me, he says, yet you should not be enslaved to anything. You see, the problem with that kind of mentality, thinking like I'm free, doing whatever you want sexually is not freedom. It's actually slavery, slavery to your impulses, slavery to gratification, slavery to selfishness. And the issue then is who's in control when I'm gratifying myself sexually? Am I serving? Am I addicted to? Am I bowing down to sex as Lord instead of Jesus? Now, some of you don't get it because you think like sex is just something fun to enjoy, but ask someone whose pornography addiction controls their schedule or their social life, that they only do things when they can set aside certain periods and their life revolves around when I can use pornography to gratify myself. Ask someone who's terrified by the control pornography has on their lives whether or not they feel free. Sin can be very enslaving. So when it comes to sexual sins, there's two questions that we need to face. Number one, Paul says, what is the cost? Secondly, who's in control when you indulge these things? And in verse 13, it seems like he's going off on a tangent, but to the Corinthians, he, he, he quotes another of their favorite sayings. And to the Corinthians, sex is just like eating. 
They rationalize it with another popular say saying that the purpose of food is for the stomach, and the purpose of the stomach is for food, and neither of them matter because in the end, God does away with both of them. In other words, this is their theological belief that it doesn't matter what you do with your body because we see it as temporary. Only your eternal soul matters. But Paul says your body does in fact matter because its purpose is for Jesus, not for sexual immorality. Now, I want you to catch that term because he's going to use this term, even though he's going to talk specifically about prostitution and adultery. But he uses this catch-all term, this all-encompassing term, sexual immorality, not just adultery, not just prostitution, which he addresses in verse 15. And the reason why is this word, Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 28. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. And so when he's talking about sexual immorality, it's not just uh, cheating. It's not just sexual intercourse, but includes a look or a thought of sexualizing someone or objectifying someone. It's being aroused by pornography and imagery. It includes things like homosexuality and premarital sex. And so if I were to give you a very clear definition, the biblical idea or definition of sexual immorality is entertaining any sexual fantasy or activity outside of the faith-love covenant of marriage between a husband and wife. And what happens here in verse 14, Paul says, unlike food, your body does matter because it's not temporary. Just as God the Father raised the Lord Jesus bodily from the dead so that the disciple Thomas could touch the scars in his hands and in his side in John chapter 20, verse 27, so that Jesus, after his death and resurrection, actually partake of food, ate food, and had breakfast with his disciples in John chapter 21, verse 12. That you and I also likewise will be experienced bodily resurrection that your body will be renewed and glorified in our physical bodies for the Lord, to love him, to worship Jesus, to serve Jesus, to live for Jesus, that your eternal life is not just being some spiritual ghost forever, but that when Jesus returns, your body, this body, will be renewed and glorified to live forever as well with him. And so the big idea of this passage this morning is that we are not to engage in sexual immorality because our bodies matter eternally for Jesus. That in some capacity, this is your body forever. Just like when Jesus was raised from the dead, he still bore the scars in his hands and in his feet, the same body renewed and glorified. And that it's not merely for the temporary pleasures of sin, but for the eternal purposes of Christ. And that the solution, and this is the key I want you to hear this morning, is that it's not just altering our external behaviors, not just don't do this, don't do that. But what we require, Paul says, is an internal change of our hearts about how we think about sex, about sin, about us, about how all that relates to God. And so let's read on verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Not like membership like a, in a club. That's the word there means like body parts. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute 
becomes one body, one flesh with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So the picture here is being part of the body of Christ is not just a theological or theoretical idea. In verse 15, he says that all of you, your, your spirit, your soul, including your body, are all connected to Jesus when you come to faith in him. And if that's true, how can we rationalize joining his cleansing and holiness with a prostitute in sinfulness? And the answer, of course, is never. It's never okay. And you should be sitting here this morning thinking, okay, I agree, of course, you know, uh, prostitution is bad, you know, especially in our modern day, we understand that it involves human trafficking a lot of the time. I don't do that, so I'm free and clear. But that's not what this passage means for us today. And prostitution doesn't mean like it does today. I want you to think back all the way to Jesus' time, to this first century church in the city of Corinth, what would happen is there's lots of kinds of idol worship, and specifically to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And so for these Corinthians, including the Christians, they're exposed daily to hundreds of priestesses from the temple of the, the te Greek temple of Aphrodite. These hundreds of priestesses would go out through the streets soliciting men in prostitution as part of their worship experience. And so I want you to think about it this way. It wasn't just for the rich people. Like today, there's a lot of stigma about prostitution because you need to have money. You do it in secrecy. There's a lot of shame about it. There was none of that back then. It was whether you were rich or poor, it was considered normal. It was considered accessible. It was considered acceptable. And it was even considered spiritual in Corinthian culture. And so what I want you to understand when we're talking about here is very different than what we think of prostitution today. That it's not just about prostitution, but what Paul is addressing is how prevalent, how easily accessible sex outside the bonds of marriage was in their culture. And so in verse 16, what he talks about here is the issue is oneness. That sex isn't just a temporary pleasure with someone, it's becoming one body one flesh with that person. And in fact, he quotes an unchanging principle from God in both the Old Testament back in Genesis 2.24 that Jesus quotes in the New Testament in Matthew chapters 19, verses 4 and 5. And so we know that this is not just some old Levitical law that we don't follow anymore, but it's an overarching, unchanging principle that God has given us. That in sex, it says that God made them male and female. He brings a husband and wife together and that the two become one flesh, creating a permanent bond because God intends it as the expression of sharing life, express, uh, sharing intimacy together in marriage. And the key here in verse 17 is that if we are saved by Jesus, we worship Jesus, we belong to Jesus, we're connected to Jesus, then we're also already one with him in spirit. And we know that from earlier in 1 Corinthians through the presence of God's Holy Spirit in us. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So what does that have to do with sex, though, when we're talking about being one with Jesus in spirit? It teaches us, here's the key, because the bond of sex isn't just physical. It's also spiritual. That great author and theologian C.S. Lewis writes that each time a man and woman enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond is established between them that must be either eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. And so 
Sexual union is not just something you do in your body, but in your soul. There is no such thing as casual sex. That's why the Word of God is very insistent that sex be practiced within the covenant, a promise with God in marriage, that this life-uniting act, rightly experienced in a lifelong union before God, where sex is wonderful and it's a beautiful it's, it's this expression of intimacy and vulnerability to be celebrated between a husband and wife. It's a place where all masks are taken off, where there's no fear of rejection, where there's no fear of abandon, abandonment when rightly performed in the covenant of marriage, where you don't have to worry about whether someone's going to call you back the next day. And so what Paul's saying in this section is the issue is intimacy and unity. Who are you one with? And the point here is that we don't want to bond our bodies to sexual immorality when we're already bonded to Jesus. You can't be one with sin when you're already one with Jesus. These are mutually exclusive categories. And I want you to hear this very clearly. Every sexual decision is a spiritual decision. It creates a permanent bond between us. In fact, in verses 16 and 17, that word, he uses it twice, to join together, joining with a prostitute, joining uh, in, in marriage or in uh, uh, your bodies together. It's a very specific Greek word in their language that means to glue something together or to cement something together. Last week, uh, our kids, they used this very small wooden chair that is from my wife's childhood that she's kept all this time. And they get to use this, this tiny chair, this tiny wooden chair upstairs for their homework time. But unfortunately, the legs had started to fall off. The back had come apart. And so uh, I have to be honest with you, I am terrible at like home repair stuff. I don't know how to do any of that kind of stuff. So I turn to the power of crazy glue. And many of you know that crazy glue, it can be really good or it can be really bad. And so there I am with this bottle of crazy glue, and I'm trying to unscrew the lid, but I can't get it off because the glue some, from previous use, some fool, <laughs> I really want to use the crazy some fool had gotten glue on the lid so that it was completely sealed shut onto the bottle. And so there I am trying to wrestle it off, and I thought to myself, okay, you know what? I just should get like a pair of pliers and just, I'll just twist it off with pliers. And so there I am trying to squeeze the bottle as I'm squeezing it, trying to get the lid off, this God-blessed lid, it started to bleed. The glue started to bleed from all the sides. And so it was getting all over my fingers, and so what did I do? I started rubbing my fingers together, right, to get it off. <laughs> Within 60 seconds, I, was, I realized my terrible mistake when I couldn't get any of my fingers apart, because that's how fast and powerful crazy glue is. And so I'm standing there sighing, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Okay, let's do this. And so I sat there and had to pry and pull apart my, my fingers. And yes, indeed, some of the skin tore. There may have been tears. And it was painful. It was frustrating. And this is the consequence of misusing glue the way that, it, that, you're, you're, that you're supposed to. And when, there's, when you misuse it, the consequences can be really bad. But glue can also be really good, too, can't it? Right? Because when I used it the right way for its intended purpose, it can put this broken chair back together, which I successfully did for my kids, finally. And when you use this kind of glue, it creates a permanent, unbreakable bond. And that is what I want you to think about in God's intention for sexuality, that it's not casual, that it's not arbitrary. 
that it creates, it's like glue, if you try to tear it apart once you create a bond and separate it, it does real damage to our souls, both to yourself and to the person, other person. But within God's will, within God's ways, it can also create a permanent spiritual bond that is strong, that's hard to break in a lasting covenant of marriage before God for a lifetime. So I want to ask you, if you are bonded with Jesus, are you expressing it in a holy way as intended between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage? Or are you bonding your body to someone or something else in an unholy way? Now, some of you, you may be thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm not bonding my body with anyone else. I'm not bonding with anyone because I use pornography. I'm not hurting anyone when I use pornography. And like the Corinthians, what Paul's trying to tell them, you can't compartmentalize your sexuality. You can't separate what you do with your body from your soul or from Jesus. And in fact, as we engage in pornography more and more, and more you're thinking you're not bonding to something, you are. You're training your body to bond to imagery or fantasy, and you're becoming desensitized and divorced from your heart and reality. Don't bond your bond, body to sexual immorality when you're already bonded to Jesus. Okay, so what are we supposed to do then when, when we're tempted to abuse or misuse sex in a sinful way? Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul says, with all other sins, the Bible instructs us, actually not Paul, but if you read through the Bible, with all other kinds of sins, the Bible instructs us to stand firm against temptation, even to resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James chapter 4, verse 7. But Paul says here in verse 18, he gives us a very clear command Instead of expecting sin to flee from you, flee from sexual immorality. This is the one category of sin where the Bible instructs us not to stand firm, but instead to run from it, to turn away from it and run. And here's why. You see, Paul says many sins cause destruction outside of our bodies. When we lie, when we steal, if we kill someone, if we take advantage of others, that's all done outside of our bodies. There's some sins that we do inside of our bodies, right? Gluttony, drunkenness, self-harm, suicide. But sexual sin is unique. It is the only sin that we commit, commit against our own body in the sense that we're joining it in a one flesh union, that permanent spiritual bond with someone else. And here's why it's so awful. Verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple? Now, this is often misquoted. A lot of people use this. This is the reason why I need to exercise more, have a good diet. That's not what this is about. Paul is saying, just as in the Old Testament there was the temple of God where the presence of God himself dwelled amongst his people, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, your body is the new temple where the presence of God, the Holy Spirit resides within you personally, John chapter 14, verse 17, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that God is in you when you follow Jesus, that God's very presence dwells in your body. And his presence means that my body is not just my own to do as I please, that I am under new management. 
that when I came to trust Jesus, follow Jesus, worship Jesus, give myself and my life, including my body, to Jesus, it's because he paid an extravagant, redemptive price to buy back our lives and save us. He suffered and shed his own blood. He died for our sins and rose as our Savior, that you and I might be cleansed and healed and forgiven and accepted and to be able to experience a new life, a better life, an eternal life in Christ and with Christ forever. And so in verse 20, Paul concludes, So, therefore, we flee from sexual immorality because our body belongs to Jesus for his glory. It doesn't belong to sin or sexual immorality, but it has a purpose. It's made for his glory. And I want to challenge you. Fleeing from sexual immorality is not just a, oh, some of us have read, you know, in the Old Testament when uh, Joseph was um, faithfully working in the house of Potiphar and, his, and Potiphar's wife tries to entice him. The master of the house, his wife, while the master is out, tries to sexually seduce him. And, and he literally runs away from her advances. She even pulls off his clothes and he runs naked out of the, out of the house. And so that's what we think of sometimes when we think about fleeing. But fleeing from sexual immorality starts with a choice, a commitment in our minds and hearts before we ever face that temptation. And I want to say to you that if you find yourself in a position that you're in a bed with with sin instead of your spouse, you're probably too late to start convincing yourself to flee. It's all the decisions and intentions and investments beforehand that I'm making a commitment to honor Jesus, to turn to Jesus, to obey Jesus, that will prevent and protect us from those situations and temptations. So, for example, with men, God has given you a healthy, manageable sex drive. It was meant to be manageable and healthy. But because in our society today we consume too much visual imagery, your sex drive has swelled up, it's grown so large, it's like trying to wrestle a sumo You don't have enough strength to overpower it. It overpowers you. And so the way that you and I can flee from sexual immorality is by starving that sumo. What I mean is, in the book, Every Man's Battle, it talks about putting your eyes on a diet because your eyes are the gateway to your mind and your thoughts. And as we do, as we put our eyes on this diet, it returns our thoughts and our hearts and our sexual drive back down to its God-intended side. It's based on this idea from Job chapter 31, verse 1, where Job says that in the days of my youth, I made a covenant with God not to look lustfully upon a a woman in the days of my youth. And so what you and I can do is to covenant with Jesus that when we see an attractive person or image, instead of trying to blame women and make them take responsibility for your sex drive, that I take responsibility for looking away or looking a woman in the eye or looking respectfully in stealing, instead of stealing a glance lustfully. And that what happens is, as we are fleeing from sexual immorality that way, we're training our eyes to flee instead of objectifying others and gratifying ourselves. We discover that Jesus starts to transform how we see a woman, how we think about them, how we relate to them, how we treat women with dignity and honor as a fellow person made in the image of God. So fleeing isn't just the physical act of running from something. It's what you do in the preparation work. Fleeing sexual immorality also includes running towards God's truth instead of what society says. An interviewer asked popular blogger Jen Hatmaker, 
can an LGBT relationship, can it be holy? And in her heart, as a person who wants to love Jesus, she responded, I do think so. My views here are very tender because I've seen too much pain and rejection at the intersection of the gay community and the church. But this woman who was a former lesbian, Rosaria Butterfield, actually reproved Jen Hatmaker for her tenderness, any kind of tenderness that leads people in sin. And so what she says is, if in 1999, in the year that I converted to, to Christ, when I walked away from the woman that I loved and from the lesbian community that I loved, if I had heard Jen Hatmaker's words then, I would have responded about how LGBT relationships couldn't be holy. I would have responded, yes, then I can have Jesus and I can have my girlfriend. I can flourish both in my academic tenure, in, and she, she was a professor of queer theory and English literature, and flourish in my church as well. Maybe I wouldn't have to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited and waited and waited for the Lord to build me back up after my conviction of sin, after suffering the consequences. You see, if I was still in the thick of the battle back in 1999 over the indwelling sin of lesbian desires, her words would have put a millstone around my neck. You understand what she's saying? This is what Jesus said when he said to the Pharisees, like, your religious rules that are outside of what God commands are like a millstone around people's neck, dragging them down to hell. That's what Rosaria is saying. So I want you to hear her words. This is the part that really meant a lot to me. To be clear, I'm not converted out of homosexuality. I'm converted out of unbelief. I'm not just swapping out a lifestyle. I died to the life that I loved. Following Jesus made me face the question, did my lesbianism reflect who I am or did it distort who I am through the fall of Adam? And I've been learning in following Jesus when something feels right or feels good or feels real or feels necessary, but it stands against the word of God. It's revealing the way that Adam's sin is marking my life. So like the Corinthians, no matter what society says, especially in your beliefs, you and I must flee all kinds of sexual immorality. And remember that we no longer belong to ourselves but to Jesus, to live for his purposes and his glory. I want you to be clear about sexual immorality. What God defines as good and as holy, it matters. Our eternal bodies matter. Who we are bonded with in our bodies matters. And the purpose for our lives and our bodies matter. And if you're dealing with any kind of sexual brokenness, whether sex outside of marriage, pornography, same-sex attraction, lust, bring those to Jesus. This isn't a message of condemnation, but of salvation for all of us, if all the people who are like me, who come from a background of sexual immorality. I want you to remember that this is the grace of God for you who sent his son to die on a cross so that you can experience forgiveness and cleansing and change and he can begin the work of restoration in our broken hearts, in our broken lives, in our broken bodies. 
We belong to Him. We were bought with a price. And it's significant that Paul wrote this letter, wrote this in a letter to a church, rather than calling out some individuals from their church and talking to them one-on-one. He writes this letter for the whole church to hear because we're not meant to face sexual temptations and immorality alone. We need help from each other. And so I want to challenge you to ask Jesus for the courage to start confessing to someone else, maybe someone of the same gender, someone who's safe, about the sins that you struggle with. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to hold you accountable. And we need to stop rationalizing sin. Instead of defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit, God has put His Spirit within us so that you and I can change. And so you can call on Him. You can invite the Holy Spirit to be your courage and your wisdom and your strength in Christ. And even though I know there are so many things that we want to enjoy, when God changes us, it's going to be painful. But it will also be joyful. All the things that we gain in Christ are far greater than all that we lose in this life, are far greater than the pain that will result from your sin if you continue in this direction. And so I want to challenge you. Flee sexual immorality. Glorify God in your body. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you are God who is holy. And as you speak to us, you speak to us in both grace and truth. That you are not a God who has come here to beat us over the head about how sinful we are. But you're a God who comes lovingly, knowing that we fail again and again, knowing that we have made sexuality an idol in our lives, making it Lord over us more than Jesus. And so, Lord, so often when we wrestle with sin, we say we want to be free to do whatever we want. That's the number one reason that people often don't want to obey you and follow you. But Lord, help us to see the slavery, the trap of sexual sin. And help us instead to come before you and in humility experience real freedom, the real joys of sexuality in Christ. And Lord, I know that this is not a simple thing. Whether our sins are heterosexual or homosexual, each of us in some way struggles with some sexual sins. But help us not to see it as falling rules or losing something. But God, just like when you called us out of sin and darkness, when we turned to you in faith, you called us to give up everything that we might have Jesus. And in Jesus, may we find we have all things, all joy, all satisfaction, that our lives and our bodies have purpose. So we glorify you. We ask for your help. We humbly turn to you in repentance. In the name of Jesus.